Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for another day you blessed us with. Thank you again for the opportunity of being together as a group here to look into your word and to worship you. Bless Lester as he brings us what you laid in his heart this morning, that we can be open and that we can learn together and grow together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see you. Greetings to each of you this morning. As I thought about the subject matter for this morning for my sermon, my mind went back to my school days and in grade school, uh, one particular contraption that that I, I remember, well, for some reason, and maybe a few of you can identify as well, but we had a school nurse that would come in on a regular basis and do an eye test for each of the students. And she used this contraption that I think it was set on a table. And, and I remember I would put my head down against it. There was a little pad in the front there where your forehead would rest on. And you'd look into it like, like you were looking through binoculars. So you look into this thing. And then she would put different lenses in there and different pictures and ask you, you know, which way do the E's point and, and um, is it clear or is it blurry? And, and there was one I remember where there was an, an apple in a tree or sometimes the apple was in a basket and you were supposed to tell her which one. I think it was some kind of test to see if you were cross-eyed or not. And so this was an, an important part of, of school because... Sometimes there's students who cannot see properly, and without realizing that, they can't learn. They can't do their schoolwork like they should be able to because they have difficulty seeing. Now, I, as far as I know, she always told me I have 20-20 vision. I never had glasses, and I, I never had a problem seeing. Um, so I'm talking this morning about visual acuity, which simply means the ability to see things clearly and sharply, to understand what your eyes are seeing. 2020 vision means that, that what we see from 20 feet is what we should be seeing from 20 feet. If the eye doctor tells you you have 2040 vision, it means that at 20 feet you see what a I guess you call them normal people, see from 40 feet or from, you see from 20 feet what most people with 20-20 vision will see from 40 feet. So clear vision um, is measured at a distance of 20 feet according to the, the eye doctors. Um, so I'm thinking about spiritual vision this morning. When I'm talking about visual acuity, the ability to see clearly in, in a spiritual sense, not with our physical eyes. This is a metaphor that, that is used often in Scripture, that the eyes and, and eyesight and being compared to, to what, it, what it's actually comparing it to is, is our minds understanding, um, taking in knowledge and understanding what that is and, and then, then applying it to our lives. Um, just as the eyes let in light and allow us to focus on our surroundings, uh, your eyes, that's what I, from what I understand, that's what your eyes actually do is they let light in. The light allows you to, to see um, not only different colors and shades and shadows, but perceive depth, distance, and so on. So just as your eyes let light in and allow 
you to focus on your surroundings so the mind takes in information and then gives us understanding. And that understanding shapes who we are. It shapes who, what's in our hearts and, and the, the people that we become and how we live our lives. You don't have to look real hard in Scripture to find numerous passages that talk about this eyesight, this spiritual eyesight, and the need to see clearly. In fact, it was um, God's plan from the very beginning was, was to restore sight to the blind in the spiritual sense. When sin came into the world, it blinded man. Um, and I want to read to you three verses here that show this kind of lay out this plan for um, God's plan for visual acuity, for uh, helping us see clearly. And, um, and then I want to bring out some, some specific ways in that I believe the enemy is, is blinding us today or blurring our, our eyesight and causing a lot of confusion. And these are just some things that I've been thinking at about a lot recently specific things. And then I'll move on to, into the main text, which is Ephesians chapter 1. And there we're going to see um, two things that God wants us to focus on. He wants us to see. So um, my first verse is, and you don't have to turn here, I'm just going to read through this fairly quickly. Isaiah 42 verses 6 and 7, where here is where God calls his son. And Isaiah prophesies about this. God says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. He's talking to, to the coming Savior, his son, Jesus. And I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. In the Old Testament already, God's plan was to bring sight through his son, Jesus Christ, to bring spiritual um, sight to those who sit in darkness. And then God's son Jesus called, um, as he lived on this earth for a period of time and, and trained his disciples and then called them to, to continue this plan of bringing visual acuity, he said to, to Paul, and this is recorded in, in Acts 26, and Paul is there recounting his conversion experience to King Agrippa. And this is what Paul says that Jesus said to him. He, he told him he's going to go to the Gentiles and he said to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then we turn to my main text here in Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. Paul now here is telling the, the fellow believers, those that he was uh, training and tutoring and and ministering to in the church here in, in Ephesians, he says to them, the eyes, and this was his prayer for them, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So we see the, the progression here, the, the plan that was in place back in the Old Testament times, that God would bring clarity of vision to people and that was Paul's prayer for the church. And, and of course, he was only leading them, teaching them, training them, that they could then appoint um, others and call others to also follow Christ and receive that clarity of vision. So 
So first of all, what are some of the ways that the enemy blurs our vision? We notice there in the, that verse I read out of Acts 26, where Jesus was talking to Paul, he says, um, he, he called Paul to turn people from the power of Satan to God. Satan and sin blinds us. We, we, we know that, that sin is compared to darkness. Satan is the, 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 um, the deceiver, the one who blinds us. And so he has, the enemy has a plan, an attempt to blur our vision, to cause confusion. And these are, these are some specific ways. There, I'm sure there could be more, but I feel like these are some that we really need to guard against in, in the time that we live in. There's two words that I think of that, that pretty well describe, I think, to me anyhow, a lot of the last year of, of our lives. And that is confusion and controversy. I think you can probably identify. I think you, you probably agree with that, that there's been plenty of that in the last year. It seems to me anyhow like an increasing amount of confusion and controversy in the world around us, and especially right here in our country and in the culture we live in. How many times in the last year have you heard somebody say the news is just depressing? I think I've said that myself. So much negativity, so much confusion, and so much controversy. Is this part of Satan's plan to blur our vision? I think it certainly can be a problem to our spiritual eyesight. Number one, Satan has a plan to blur our vision by cluttering our minds. There is an, a problem with an overconsumption of information without properly understanding it all. Now, I know we, there's, there's much we can't understand. We, we all are in that place where we really can take in more information than we can understand. I'm not trying to say you should only read information that you can fully understand. But there's a temptation to, to be an over-consumer. To clutter your mind with all kinds of unnecessary things. Um, there was this study done that, that found that, that people tend to share, especially on social media tend to share um, information, share articles without ever reading the article, just the headline. And these, I don't know if you call them scientists, or I did this study on this and did a report on it. And, and they put that report out there with all their statistics and things, and it got a lot of attention. So this clever, um, I don't even know who it was, I just heard somebody else say this, but this, this clever um, media source agency somewhere went and put out this headline. Study finds that people share news without reading more than the headline. And in the, the body of that article, they put nothing but a bunch of Latin jabber. And then watched how many times people shared it. And indeed, they did share it. So it, that's an illustration of how, we can, um, how our minds can become cluttered with things. And, and we're willing to just give out information uh, without even understanding it. It's, um, there's this 
quantity of information without the quality. Very easy to get into. I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what is important and what is possible for me to know and what is not important or possible for me to know? And that may help us sort out through uh, what are we going to give attention to? What are we going to spend time consuming when it comes to information? And all this simply distracts us from living well for God, I believe. It's a distraction to living well for God. Like I said, yes, we, we, we can certainly should probably read some information that we can't understand. It has a way of stretching, teaching us, stretching our understanding. But don't let it distract you from simply living well for the glory of God. Enemy blurs our vision by cluttering our minds. If you... You can probably identify with this as well, um, a, a desk or a, or a work table. Those are two, two areas that are a problem for me in, in getting cluttered. And, and when, when they're cluttered, it has a way of just causing a lot of confusion. When there's all kinds of things there that, that should be done and aren't being done or just don't have anywhere else to go and they get laid there, um, then when, when you're looking for what you want, you can't find it and and you look at what you could be doing and you're overwhelmed by all the, the projects that are laying before you. This is sort of how it is when we clutter our minds with uh, excess information. <clears throat> the second one is what I'm calling a dangerous duo, and it is knowledge and pride. The combination of knowledge and pride. The enemy uses this to blur our vision. It's dangerous for two reasons. It's dangerous because we don't always know what we think we know. We may have a lot of knowledge, have done a lot of studying in a certain area, but we don't always know everything about that, even though we may think we do. And it's dangerous because pride, along with that knowledge, may well destroy another person who doesn't have the knowledge that I have. This is illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to turn there. Um, quickly and read some of those verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a passage where Paul's writing to the issue of offering things to idols. And especially, I think, the issue here was whether or not they should eat meat that was offered to idols. And he says... Somewhere here in this chapter that knowledge puffs up. Um, Yeah, in the the first verse, I'm going to just read a few of the verses there, beginning in verse one. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in every one that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And he just goes on to explain there how that, how that when we have this knowledge and we have pride, we can destroy another brother that does not have this, that knowledge. So there's this dangerous duo of knowledge and pride. 
This chapter here, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I think can, could well be applied to many of the controversial issues that we face in the church today. We don't and haven't had in, in any recent years that I know of any problem with trying to decide whether or not we should eat meat that was offered to idols. But there's other issues similar, and uh, we need to be careful that knowledge and pride do not destroy others. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I think, speaks to this. That's what we refer to as the love chapter at time, sometimes. And, and it talks about you know, having all this knowledge, this understanding, all these great gifts. Um, though I speak with the tongues of, of men and of angels, and, 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 but if we don't have love along with all that, then it's nothing. It's worthless. The other problem with this is that, that I think most of us tend to like to talk more than we like to listen. Now you may say, no, I don't like to talk. It's easy for me to be quiet. But when I'm talking about listening here, it's, it's more than just the absence of talking. Okay, so there, there's, 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 you can listen to somebody or you can stand in front of them and not talk, but you might not actually be listening to what they say. And for most of us, and I think this is just a part of our sinful nature maybe, that we would rather talk than listen. James 3 talks about the tongue being something that no man can tame. And I'm not going to take the time to turn to that passage, but, but um, it gives us a lot of wisdom there about how to control our tongues and how to listen rather than talk. So knowledge and pride will often cause us to talk more than listen. We want other people to know what we know. The third way that the enemy blurs our vision is he would like for us to continually reinforce our bias. Now, we, we all have biases, things that we... Um, a bias is a particular tendency or trend or, or way of thinking or, or an opinion that's especially one that's preconceived or unreasoned. And, and we can't escape all bias. We're all you know, raised in a certain way, taught by our parents, um, raised in a certain culture, and all that affects how we view the world around us. However, there's, there's a thing they call confirmation bias, and this is how Wikipedia explains it. It's the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's beliefs or hypothesis without, while, while giving disproportionately less attention to the information that contradicts it. The effect is stronger for emotionally charged issues and for deeply entrenched beliefs. People also tend to interpret ambiguous evidence as supporting their existing position. Biased search, interpretation, and memory have been invoked to explain attitude polarization, which is in disagreement which is when a disagreement becomes more extreme even though the different parties are exposed to the same evidence. Belief perseverance, when beliefs persist after the evidence for them is shown to be false. Have you seen any of that going on? Can you identify with that? Confirmation bias, where, where our own bias, we continually reinforce that by the information that we consume. Instead of listening, instead of opening ourselves to a different viewpoint, we just continually reinforce our own viewpoint, focus on that, and to the point there where, where it says that um, 
what they call belief perseverance, when beliefs persist after the evidence for them is shown to be false. Instead of trying to understand another's point of view, we reinforce our own. And the diversity of the church and the, the submission that we are called to should help us overcome these types of biases. The church was intended to be a diverse um, setting where not everybody thinks alike, not everybody acts the same, not everybody has the same gifts and abilities. In uh, I didn't write down that passage, but it, I'm thinking it's 1 Corinthians uh, 15 maybe where it talks about the body, the church compares it to a body. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. And, and it talks about how that, that different parts of the body are called to work together. This is by God's design, and this will help us overcome confirmation bias. You know, it can, since it's using the illustration here in, in 1 Corinthians about a hand and... Um, can't lay my eyes on that right now, but the different parts of, of the body, it says... It compares to the church. And just like you know, one person is like a hand, another like a foot, the, the, the hand may say, um, well, the hand can, if there's something in my path, my hand can reach out and gently pick it up and move it. And, and the foot can't do that. So the hand could, it could just see all of life from its perspective. And the hand could say to the foot, well, Dumb, why don't you just pick it up and move it out of the way instead of kicking it? You know, that's kind of what, what we do in, in the body of the church when we, we only see things from our point of view instead of from another person's point of view. So we should value this diversity in the church and learn to work with it and learn to submit to each other to help us overcome our bias. And the fourth one is we, the devil would like for us to just wander away from God's word. God's word, we know, is the truth. It, it, can, it contains all that we need to know for life and godliness. And while, yes, it's valuable to read more than just God's word, we need to con- develop the habit of continually coming back to God's word instead of wandering away from it. And again, that's what this overconsumption of information can do to us distracting us to to read so many other things that there's no time left for consuming God's word. The more we rely on fallible human beings, you know, whether that's books they've written or listening to other teaching, the more imperfect we become because all these these people that are writing these books have imperfections. All the people that are giving us this information have imperfections. So we need to continually reevaluate what they're saying with God's word. All the information that we consume needs to be evaluated by God's word. And, and I realize that could be a difficult exercise to do. I don't always consciously, after reading a, a news article or an opinion or a periodic writing somewhere, I don't always take it and then, then page from my Bible and compare it. But we need to know God's word well enough that at least you know, red flags go up at certain times and that, that when there's something somebody writes that we're having difficulty understanding, we think about what God says about it and evaluate all this information by God's word. 
The enemy would like for us to wander away, to forget. Just let God's word kind of be this dusty book on the shelf. Those are some of the specific ways that I believe the devil is blurring our vision. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Visual acuity in a blinding world. How can we see through all this fog and confusion? I want to read verses 15 through 23 in Ephesians chapter 1. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places." Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now here I see two things in much more of a general sense that, that we should be focusing on, that we should see, that God here wants us to see so that our vision would be clear. I'm not going to, going to get into real specifics on this. I think you can take this and apply it to your lives and, and take the, the, the specific points I gave you on how the devil tries to blur our minds and, and take these general principles here and apply them two things in general that that god wants us to see first of all in paul's prayer here he says the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints he's saying we need to see beyond just this world Seeing beyond what, what we're experiencing today. This has the ability to transform our lives and to change our current understanding of our lives. Know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. As long as there is a glimmer of hope in any difficult situation we're in, we can usually find perseverance, the ability to persevere and go on and continue on as long as there is a glimmer of hope. I've read some stories of prisoners under the, the German, the Nazis in World War II and in that era. And some of those prison camps where terrible things happened, and we know the story of how Thousands and thousands of people were killed there. And, and we look back and we wonder sometimes, why did those people so willingly, um, why were they so willing captives at times to get on these trains and be hauled into these um, prisons or, or um, work camps? And 
I think from, from what I understand, many times there was this, for them, there was this glimmer of hope. There was this thinking that, well, you know, this is terrible circumstances, but we think we're going to get through. We see a glimmer of hope somewhere and they continue, excuse me, <clears throat> they continue to, to move on. But once that glimmer of hope was completely gone, once they had no more will to live, that didn't last long. As long as there's a glimmer of hope, we have strength to go on. And here Paul is saying, I want you to be able to see that hope that God has. His calling for you, the hope that is there for you in that. And I like how the, another version says it, the riches of his glorious inheritance. He's talking about hope and, and riches, something glorious that is in store for us as, inherit, as our inheritance. We know that when we follow Christ, he makes us a part of his family. And so he, he uses this term of inheritance as, as God's children. We're given part of, of God's um, belongings, part of, of what he owns is given to us as in, an inheritance. The rich, the riches of his glorious inheritance for us. Think about the most beautiful things you see in the world around you, whether it's, it's nature um, or even the, the, the beautiful things that happen in, in relationships with each other, the, the security we can find in, in good relationships, the, um, just the, the meaning it brings to life to, to have people around you who care about you and, and the beauty of the natural world that is here all around us. Think about all that. And then think about what all that would be like if there was absolutely no sin or death. It's really more than quite we can comprehend because it's all that we have ever known is to live in a world that is corrupt. Despite all the corruption and sin, God has put some very beautiful things around us as a glimpse of what the future holds. Where there will be no more sin or death. We need to have a vision. We need to focus our eyes on, on that that. Glorious inheritance and put our hope in that. And the second thing he wants us to see is the great power that God has and that he is using to work for us. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? The same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. That was impossible for any man to do. It's still impossible for any man to do. To resurrect somebody from the dead. What God did for his son Jesus Christ. And what Jesus illustrated to us um, numerous times as he walked this earth. In raising the dead back to life. This is a power that is far beyond what we can do. There is, there is still in the world today despite all the... Um, modern inventions of medicine and everything they have to do to save people. There's still this, just this sudden um, end of, of hope just when, when, when you're faced with death. There's nothing more that the doctors can do. There's nothing more. Um, but God has the power to overcome that death. God has power over that. And the same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead 
He also took Christ and sat him at his own right hand in heaven. Notice how he points out both of those there in verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. I think that's significant that that he points out both of those. He raised him from the dead and, and he brought Christ, the risen Christ, back into his presence in glory, sat him at his own right hand. And that is the, the, the idea of sitting at the right hand of, of a prince or a king was the highest place of honor in their culture. The highest place of honor was to be seated at, seated at the right hand of a prince. This is what God did for his son. This is what his power can do. Raise him from the dead and bring him to that glorious place. And this is the power that is at work in our lives as well. Overcome the power of sin and death and then bring us into his presence as well. You might feel trampled on at times. You might feel dishonored or abused by all the things in this world. But set your eyes on this. God, by God's power, you'll be raised up and brought into his presence. I like the words that the psalmist uses uh, many times. It, we know that, that David went through some very difficult things, and yet he found a way to rejoice in God, a, a way to trust in him. And he definitely had in his eyesight um, a, a vision, a, a picture of God's glory and, and of the work that God was going to do. I like to read just, um, a portion of Psalm 37. <clears throat> this is only one of, of many psalms that, that bring this out. How that David, um, he uses words of rejoicing at his future glorification and at the destruction of his enemies. And sometimes we might cringe a little bit at some of the words he uses because of how, how much he glorifies the destruction of his enemies. We're taught to love our enemies, and rightfully so. But think about it in terms of he's looking at a time when, when God will bring justice. It's, it's a time when, when God will make things right again, when, when the enemy will be brought to nothing. I'm going to read Psalm 37, um, beginning in verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bow shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine they shall be satisfied, but the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, and those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I think I'll stop there. You get the idea of the, the word pictures he uses of how the, 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 his enemies will be destroyed and overcome. 
and the, the vision He has for that glory in the future. That's what we need to focus our eyes on. If we want visual acuity, be able to see clearly and understand what's going on around us. I have a couple more verses here I'd like to, to read just to wrap this up that talk about our eyesight and, and what God is doing in his power. Um, Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Second Peter 1 3. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Challenge you to pray that prayer, that God would open your eyes and help you to see the wonderful things in his word. The world will continue to be a confusing and difficult place, but we need to place our eyes on Allow God to, to transform us that our eyesight can see clearly. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call upon you. We can know you. You have given us your word. We have such um, ready, easy access to it today in our time and the place we live. Help us to make it useful and apply it to our lives and not let it um, fade away, but to, to know your word and to interpret the world around us through the, the insights that you give us there. We realize we have an enemy who is at work. who wants to bring confusion and division and strife. Help us to see clearly, especially in the, the information that we consume the things we read and things we see, that we could understand that you have a plan for us and you have an inheritance for us. And place, may we place that before us as our hope and what we long for. Thank you that you are working in our midst with the power that you have, the power that can overcome sin and death. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chad, I'd like for you 